Well, we're uh, in a little series in the book uh, of Luke. We're looking at Luke chapter 9. And over the last couple of weeks, what I've been trying to do is to get you to think a little bit and reframe your vision of Jesus. Maybe uh, trying to get you to think about Jesus less as this kind of picture on the screen. Oh, this picture. Uh, don't know if any of you have a little model like that in your house. Less like that. Um, and more maybe like this, uh, this kind of picture. More about Jesus as this supreme author, creator, savior, healing. And uh, I want to dig into it with you a little bit more today to think about, well, who is Jesus really? And why does that matter? What are the implications uh, for us? And uh, we're gonna do it by looking at the transfiguration. Um, Anyone admit to being like an expert on the transfiguration? I was hoping someone might say yes and preach, but uh, no. Uh, honestly, me neither. Until a couple of weeks ago, I had never really looked at it. Now, if you, if you come from an Eastern Orthodox background, this is one of the key feasts that you study in the church's year. However, if you come from a more Protestant background, probably not. Probably not. We tend to skip this bit over, but the bad news is, is it's right in front of us, and the good news is it's actually amazing. It's incredible. And it answers one of the biggest questions that we can ever ask in the universe. And so we're going to read this morning um, from Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. And I'm looking around for Scott. There's Scott, who is going to uh, read it. Luke chapter 9, studying at verse 28. Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took up Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. This is the word of God. Okay, so here's the picture. One day, Jesus goes up a mountain with his best buds. Jesus lights up like a light bulb. Two ancient prophets uh, who died a very long time ago appear next to him and have a little meeting. The disciples, though, are half asleep and don't really realize what's going on until they suddenly wake up. Peter then decides the best thing he can do is create his version of the Hollywood stars by putting memorials out for each of them. A cloud descends, a booming voice, and then suddenly they're all alone. What? <laughs> what is all that about? Why are we looking at that? Did that really happen? And if it did, what does that tell us about anything at all? Well, it actually gives us the answer to the biggest question that you can ever ask, which is, who is Jesus? And then, who am I? 
This is such a climactic moment, in fact, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts that as Jesus gives this moment to the disciples, from here he suddenly turns and heads towards the cross. Like all the ministry that he's been doing throughout Galilee suddenly turns and he is on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? Well, if you can remember an old movie, uh, depending on your age, The Prince of Egypt. Anyone remember that one? Classic. Some of you may have even worked on it. I don't know. Um, but here's Moses, right? And God uses Moses to rescue the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites out of slavery and captivity in Egypt. And they cross the Red Seas and they escape. And then they find themselves for 40 years crossing through the wilderness uh, towards the promised land. Does anyone remember when they're in the desert for 40 years, how it is that God leads them? Pillar of fire. So in the daytime, there's this cloud that's really bright that lights up in front of them and guides them. And at night, it it turns into like this pillar of fire. And for 40 years, they navigate their way through the desert because of this pillar. In fact, this is God's presence. God, the God who created the universe, drawing near and guiding them along the way. And it's such a significant uh, moment that actually at one point Moses goes like, hey God, if your presence doesn't go in front of us, don't send us. We don't want to go because we need you. And then there's this kind of other moment um, in Exodus 24 when the pillar of cloud descends on Mount Sinai, this huge holy mountain. And Moses goes up and it says that fire and cloud engulf the mountain. It was so holy that, in fact, if anybody even touched the mountain, they could die. Moses actually says, hey, God, can I come inside the cloud to talk to you? And, Moses, and God's like, mm, probably not, actually, because you might die. Stay where you are. But, but what this is, strange as it might sound to us, is this is like the enormous, almost atomic level power of God that created and flung stars into space. It's all of this coming down to touch creation. And it's so other, it's so big, it's so giant that that it's almost too much for creation and humans to deal with. Now I tell you that because here we are this morning on a mountain, similar mountain. The voice of God comes booming down. Moses, he's back there. Elijah, who's another prophet who heard the voice of God on a mountain, he's there. But there's a real subtle difference. Even though there's a cloud, even though the glory is there, the glory and the light and the fire are not coming from the cloud. They're coming from a person. They're coming from Jesus. It literally says that he shone. I don't know what you have in your mind when you think of Jesus shining. I'm sure we have the wrong picture somewhere. But there's something of of such beautiful brilliance and power that is coming from Jesus that it it is undeniable who he is. Now, when Moses came down from the mountain, it says he he shone for a little bit. I think being in the presence of God, it it changes you, doesn't it? Moses sort of had this reflected sunburn thing going on. I don't know the the glow, but it went. But, But when Jesus is on the mountain, he is shining. And it's not just that he's shining because like, it's a moment, but it's because he is God himself. God himself doing something. And in fact, we know who he is because he's standing next to these prophets. And people are wondering, is, is Jesus just like another prophet? 
And it's like one of those identity lineup kind of things, you know, like Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Which one might be God? Which one is God? And the answer is, of course, the shining one. Just in case you were wondering, this is, this is who God is. And, and Hebrews puts it like this. The sun, S-O-N, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful world. Basically, like for, for 30 years of Jesus' life, he has been wearing an extremely good disguise. Uh, think, I'm thinking sort of Clark Kent with the glasses kind of idea. And people have been going like, is, this, is he God? Is he not? Like, who are we supposed to understand this to be? But what you get at the transfiguration is just for a moment, suddenly, like the disguise is gone. Like the shield is gone. Suddenly you've got like Superman literally in front of you. That's basically what they're experiencing. They're like, oh my goodness. Like this is God right here. And it's really significant because it answers that question about like how do we know who God is? Like how could we possibly know about a God who's out there somewhere? How could we know what he's like? How could we know what he feels? How could we know what he expects us to do? How could we know those things just beyond what he's written down in the past? And here's the answer. You can know exactly what God's like because you can know Jesus. If you want to know what God feels about something, you study the life of Jesus. If you want to know how God expects you to act, then you look at the life of Jesus and what he had to say. Jesus is not one prophet amongst many, like Moses and Elijah. He's not a good dude. He is actually God himself standing in their midst. Now, the implications of this are kind of massive if you, if you follow it through. Um, there's a guy uh, called Luc Ferry. Um, his name's actually spelled Luc Ferry, but he wouldn't be a great philosopher if his name was just Luke Ferry, it has to be more exotic. So um, he had wrote this amazing book called The Brief History of Thought. And what he did, he's not a Christian, but he looked at, at the way that great philosophical, philosophical movements came into the world. And he made this really amazing observation um, that when Christianity arrived 2,000 years ago with these teachings, with these moments, that the change was so cataclysmic that it totally supplanted uh, Greek philosophy. Now, Greek philosophy was like the greatest of all, you know, the Aristotles, the Plato's, the, the big beards and the, you know, the silver hair and, you know, the massive thoughts about the universe and things and what, how life works. Well, when Christianity came, it offered something so much better, so much bigger that it almost wiped Greek philosophy off the map for a while. And basically what Greeks believed was that behind everything, behind everything you can touch, everything you can see, everything you can smell, was a greater reality. They called it like the logos. And the logos was like this glue that held the whole of matter and space and time together. It was a sort of out there, sort of impersonal, cold kind of thing. But if you wanted to know how to be all that you were meant to be, if you were supposed to know the answer to the life, universe, and everything, what you had to do is you had to line yourself up with the logos. Now, different Greek philosophers had different ideas about how you lined yourself up with the Logos. Um, if you were a Stoic, Stoics had this kind of view of order and being a little bit serious and detached. But the basic idea was that you needed to line yourself up by being the best version of, of who you were made to be. So, for example, if you were born to be a king, you should be the best kind of king. 
But equally, if you were a slave, then you should just be the best sort of slave. Because in so doing it, you find the order to the universe. Now, people like the Epicureans, um, you know those guys, slightly different view, uh, it would be fair to say, about how to line yourself up with the universe, more about like fun and having a good time. Uh, and, but, but either way, the logos was something deeply impersonal, unknowable, out there sort of thing. But you see, when Christians encountered Jesus and used his words, what they realized was that, to a point, the Greeks were right. They were right that there is a force behind everything. There is a force that holds it all together. There is something behind everything we can see and touch. And it is the Logos. It's just that the Logos isn't a detached, cold, impersonal thing. It's actually a person. Right? John 1, you know this bit, starts like this. In the beginning, before space and time and matter, was the Logos. And the Logos word was with God, and the Logos was God. Who could we be talking about? Verse 9, John goes on, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Who or what do Christians say is the Logos? Jesus. Jesus. The very force that created everything, matter, time, and space, has a shape, has a name, has feelings, is a person called Jesus. Now, if you, if you think about how that impacted the world, the, the implications are kind of massive. You see, in a Greek philosophical way, you, you were sort of as good as you were good. You're as successful as you manage to be, or as much money, or beauty, or confidence, or probably later down the line, followers on social media, or whatever it was. But today, in the Christian world, well, that's not your value, is it? Because it's not about how good you are, it's about your relationship with the Logos. It's about being known by him. It's about being in relationship with him. It's about his power that works in you. And if that's true, then actually there's incredible sense of equality to the world. Because I can't be better than you and you can't be better than me because actually our definition of how good or not we are, how valuable we are, is defined by who he says we are and not who we say we are. If the Logos is a person who feels, who loves, then how we love actually matters. Luke Ferry rightly points out, there could be no human rights, no human dignity, no equality. There can be nothing of those sorts unless you believe in a God who is like that, who feels and loves and acts and desires. You see, in Christian thinking, reality is not a principle to abstractly contemplate. It's a person to know, to love who loves you, who made you, who adores you, and who you are invited to delight in, to experience, to have an intimate relationship with, a loving relationship. And if you know him, if you are in relationship with him, then actually that is the ultimate reality of the universe. That is the ultimate reality. That is how you find your true self, to be defined by him 
not by self-actualization or your followers on social media or your bank account or anything else, to be defined by him. And the invitation, as I said last week, if that is true, then there really can be only one response, which is to give him your life, to give him all that you have, to let him in his infinite power and wisdom take control, to become his apprentice, recognizing that he does not revolve around you, but you will revolve around him. As Dostoevsky says, you know, if God does not exist, then anything is permitted. Make up anything you want. But if this Logos is a person who exists and has feelings and acts and will, then all things about reality have a shape and a purpose to them. I love what Sarah Lowe says of the transfiguration. Says Jesus on the mountaintop unveiled a foretaste of heaven and glory. Light filled him so that the witnesses remarked on a hue of white that was whiter than any shade possible. It broke the barrier between heaven and earth, for Jesus was the one who could belong to both at the same time. A citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. This, the transfiguration tells us, this is what God looks like, like Jesus. But it's not just that they got to see him. I mean, it's pretty cool. I don't know, it must have been pretty cool to be on that mountain that day. But actually what the transfiguration tells us a lot about is what he came to do. And that really matters. So you see, in the, um, in the Old Testament, the glory of God was, was so extreme, as I said, that, that if you went too close to it, it, it could do you serious harm. And it's not that it was a bad thing in any way, it was just it was so powerful. You know, if you were to go out on a sunny morning, which strangely, this is the only one in the whole summer, which is not. Um, but if you were to go out and look up into the sun for a few minutes, you'd be in big trouble, right? Why? Because your eyes, your retinas, you, they can't deal with the luminosity. They can't deal with the brightness of the sun. And, and there's something of that, which is when you look in the Old Testament about when people encountered God, it was that same sort of dynamic. Like it was just so bright. Like it was so holy, it was so other that they, they just couldn't handle it. But also, because it's about light shining into darkness, what, what also seemed to be true in the Old Testament is that when the light shone on people, it exposed the darkness. You know, like sometimes you can have a bit of a messy room, but when it's nighttime and you have low mood lighting on, you know, you can get away with it because you can't really see it. And then the next morning, the sun comes up and you look and you're like, oh no, there's all the dirt. Like, that, that's kind of the problem. Uh, Laura and I, we have a, a little house in England which we used to live in. And for the last seven years, it's been rented out to some, some, this family. Uh, and a few weeks ago, they moved out. And we didn't know what it would be like uh, inside. And so we, we sent an agent and a decorator around to look at it. And the sort of bad news came back, you know, like, so sorry you're gonna to have to paint and decorate everything. Like every wall, every floor, every ceiling, like you're gonna to have to do the lot. And I said, well, can't I just sort of, can't I just do some of it? You know, could I just pick the worst ones and do that? Would that be enough? And they said, well, the problem is, is if you try and decorate like that, then basically everything you don't decorate will look awful. <laughs> Right, you ever tried that? It will look absolutely terrible because all the beautiful things will show up all the nasty things. 
And that's basically what seems to happen throughout the Old Testament. Like when God's glory comes to people, like their response is actually, OMG. <laughs> like, oh no. I, I, Isaiah, he says, and he's a pretty cool dude, right? He's a prophet. But he says, woe to me, I am undone. Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Like, oh no. Like, this is something so beautiful, and it's so bright, and it's shone up all the junk in my life. Oh no. Job says it. Um, I don't know if you've got it. Job 40, verse 4. But he, he basically is like, I am unworthy. I can't even speak. I can't even speak it out loud because I have nothing to say in the presence of God. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth, he says. You see, in a natural state, when the glory of God comes, we should actually feel a huge moral weight from it. Because our sin, our brokenness, our darkness shouldn't be able to stand his glory. If you remember Jesus, even with his Clark Kent disguise on, like when, when the demons came near to Jesus, their response was like, actually, oh, like, oh no. Like, get away from us, because we can't stand to be anywhere near you. And of course, it's not that God's trying to kill anyone. It's just something so beautiful, something so overwhelming about his power. And so in the Old Testament, um, what they did was they, they built this sort of like protective layer around God, because God wanted to dwell with the people but it's just that they couldn't come too near him because it was too dangerous for them to do it. So they, they built sort of almost like around an atomic reactor, you know, you have like all those layers and concrete things. Right, they kind of did that in the Old Testament too. They called it a tabernacle. And at first it was, it was like these massive great curtains and this great sheets and it was like these layers. And people could only come in like so far because if they came in too far, they'd be in, in big trouble. And then, of course, later on, it becomes the temple with these huge walls and these massive curtains as well. Now, I tell you that because when you go back to the disciples, it says in the passage that the glory of God descends on the mountain. And like Peter and the other disciples, like they freak out. They completely freak out. They're like, OMG, like we're in so much trouble right now. God's glory has just arrived in our presence like we could die. In fact, if you notice what Peter says, he's like, quick, let's put up some tabernacles. <laughs> like, let's put some layers of protection around ourselves, right? Let's put a layer of protection around Jesus because if we don't, we could die here because his glory is going to show up our brokenness. And if that happens, like we might die. Verse six, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But yet, they didn't. They didn't die. In fact, then if you spotted what the voice came down and said to them of God, do not be afraid. Now that would have totally blown their grid apart. Like, do not be afraid. This is actually definitely a moment to be afraid. How can this possibly be? Well, it says they opened their eyes and right in front of them was Jesus. Jesus. If this is blowing your mind, don't worry. I'll explain in a minute. Jesus makes a way for us to encounter the presence of God. Jesus makes a way for mere mortal human beings to come into the glory of God. How? Well, through the cross, through the cross. 
There's this little detail which we often miss in the Easter story, but it's Matthew 27. And it says, at that moment, and this is the moment that Jesus died, the moment Jesus gave his life up, it says this, the curtain of the temple, right? Literally the tabernacle curtain that protects people from the presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. This huge cataclysmic moment of Jesus' death is marked by the dividing line between the presence of God and the rest of the world being destroyed. At this moment, the glory of God spreads out throughout the whole world. How? Well, it's because with what Jesus does on the cross for you, what he does for me, is that he took all of the sin, right, the darkness, all the things that would make it totally impossible to come into his presence, he takes all that stuff on himself and he nails it to the cross. And he nails it to the cross. Which means that where we should come into the presence of God and be like, oh no, we are screwed. Instead, we come into the presence of God and we're able to boldly and confidently arrive there. Why? Because when God sees us, He doesn't see us as like broken and messed up. He actually sees us as white, as clean, as holy as we should be. He, Jesus, lost his glory so that we may be able to get glory. He lost his life so that we could gain life. He lost his power so we could get it. He lost his beauty so we could get it. And now, the incredible, astonishing thing is that we are called a temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only that we can come toward God without dying, but actually we can be holders, containers of his power. Containers of that atomic level of presence that gives us healing transformation. Now, that should sound a bit scary, I think. It should sound a bit like, oh my goodness, that's what the presence of God is like. I don't deserve that. I mean, when I first looked at it, I was just like, I don't know if I want like, that much power to come into my life because I'm a mess. You know, like I've got all sorts of dark things. Like I don't need those things lighting up any brighter. Thank you. But here's the beauty. The cross is a gift. You didn't earn it, I didn't earn it. I certainly didn't deserve it, and you didn't deserve it either. But out of his great love for us, we are invited into this astonishing, life-changing miracle. A lot later on, Peter, he goes on to write this. He says, you church are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God because once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You see, the invitation of Jesus to every human being is come and receive forgiveness. Come and receive mercy. Come and be washed clean. 
Because as you are, you are ready to receive. Ready to receive the power of life itself. It's an amazing thing, amen? I think it's incredible. But if it's true, how do we respond? Well, as I said earlier, it seems to me like the first thing that we all have to do if we come to the conclusion this is true is we basically have to give him our lives. I don't think there really is any, any other way around that. One of the, the saddest things I, I hear, and I hear it a lot, maybe you do too, is, oh, Jesus, yeah, he's okay. It's all right. You know, it's not, not really relevant to my life anymore. Life's a bit busy. Uh, I've got questions. I've got some things. So I'm not sure if I want to do that Jesus thing anymore. And he's okay. I'll think about him occasionally. But N.T. Wright says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh? that life itself became life and walked in our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it's a sham. It's a nonsense. It's a bit of deceitful play acting. But most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Let me just say this in so much love. Nominal Christianity is a huge waste of time. It's a huge waste of time, right? Jesus is not your boyfriend or your girlfriend. He is not your homeboy. He isn't just some nice dude. He is not some historical figure who maybe said some good things that we might want to think about from time to time, particularly at Christmas and Easter, the rest of the year's irrelevant. Like, Jesus is not those things. Either he is God himself, who shapes and defines matter and time and space, or he's not. Right? That's literally what's in front of us. And if he is, then the response is, revolve your life around him. Turn to him, obey him, do what he says, like give him everything, make him Lord and King. Or he's not, in which case, do something else. Go to the beach, go somewhere. Right? But you can't sit in the middle for too long. You can't. Actually, to sit in the middle is to show incredible amount of disrespect to the one who gave everything. Now, don't hear me, don't hear what I'm not saying. Right? If you are here today and you're like, I'm on a journey, this is all kind of new, I don't think I'm quite there yet. Hey, we're so grateful you're here. Like you are free to explore. We love that you're here. If you've got big questions, we want to invite you to bring your questions and explore and debate with us. We want to talk. That's, that's wonderful. But just don't stay there forever. Don't. Some of us have stayed in this place of like, well, maybe, no, don't really care, right, for a very long time. But as Tim Keller says, either he is God, in which case give him everything, or he's not, in which case it's fake and give him nothing. But do not think you can just call him a nice dude. So uh, obey him. Give your life to him because he's not tame. He's not tame. Secondly, though, um, worship him. Worship him because he's not boring. He's not boring. 
Um, I've told you before, I, um, I got kicked out of uh, youth and kids ministry at my church when I was growing up because um, I thought church was extremely boring, uh, honestly. Uh, actually, the reason I have the signature I do have is because I sat through so many boring church services because um, I got kicked out of Sunday school, they wouldn't let me in, um, that I just kept like doodling my name over and over for about a year. And after a year, I was like, oh, look, it's a signature. That'll do. Um, so that's how I got a signature, right? What I've come to conclude, though, 25 years on, Jesus is not boring. <laughs> Church can be boring. Jesus is not boring. The one who flung stars into space, who created time and space and matter, not boring, just saying, right? He is infinitely powerful and good. But he's also the one who shows us what beauty looks like. Now, I will confess, I am not the greatest artist in the room. Um, some of you are great artists. Um, if you were to put a beautiful oil painting in front of me, my likely response would be, that's a nice painting. Uh, if you were to give me a $1,000 glass of wine, I would likely respond, hmm, that's a nice glass of wine. Right, that's, that's about my level. A Little bit more passionate about music and aesthetics and nature. But deep down, I have this desire for beauty, and I imagine you do too. Like we have this sort of innate longing for what is good and beautiful and true. But what the transfiguration shows us is the source of true beauty, the source of, of true goodness, the source of, of life itself. And the invitation through the transfiguration is that we too can come toward him. We don't have to stand at the back. We don't have to look at him from afar. We're actually invited to see him. Like those disciples saw him with his glory unveiled in front of them and they were like, oh my goodness. We too can do that in a way. And we do it through worship. And of course, as I said last week, worship is not, I do like loud songs, I don't like loud songs. You know, I, I do like putting my hands up. I definitely never put my hands up, you know, whatever your thing is, right? That, that's not really the conversation. It's about posture, right? It's, it's about leaning in. The invitation of worship is that we step in to the presence of God and guess what happens? He steps in too. Draw near with faith, we're told. And as we step in, what so often happens, and maybe you've experienced this, is that he just pulls back the curtains a little bit. He pulls back the veil a little bit and suddenly we get this glimpse. We get this glimpse of his love. We get this glimpse of his life. We get this glimpse of his beauty and it fills us and it transforms us and it shapes us. So worship him on a mountain, on your own, with other people in a room like this, in song, in prayer, in poetry, however you worship him, worship him, because he's not boring. And then finally, be patient, because there's always more than meets the eye. You know, for hundreds of years, hundreds of years, the Israelites waited, like looking, watching, is he coming? Like, is he going to come? Is he going to save us? Is he going to rescue us? And even when he came to earth, for 30 years, he put on a really good disguise and they didn't spot it. 
And then suddenly in this moment, and then on the cross, we see this sudden transformation. He was the one. Now, all the time, though, he was working. All the time. He was working before he came to earth. Jesus was working before the creation of the universe. He was working on the cross, and he's still working today. His glory is working. But I don't know about you, but my problem is that I'm so wedded to time. I'm so wedded to order. You know, that, that actually I think if something doesn't happen on my time scale, it must be broken. You know, do you feel like that? I'll give you an example about how God's time is definitely different to mine. Um, for five months, um, Laura and I have been waiting for the US government to give us a particular piece of paper so that we can travel to England tonight uh, and see our friends and our family. And we have prayed every day. And uh, our lovely lawyer who is in this church has been praying every day. And we have written to Congress people and asked them to help us. Uh, and the chief of police has said, I will help you and I am praying for you too. Uh, and do you know when the piece of paper is arriving? Tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. It arrives in the mail tomorrow and we leave today. Now, it turns out that tomorrow is fine uh, because it can get FedEx to England. But, but my point is that, that I often have a bit of an agenda for how I think God should act and the time scale in which he should answer my prayers. It seems God often has a different time scale th than I do. Anyone notice that in their lives? He's not quite as fast often as we, we want him to be. Well, but maybe, just maybe, that's because he created time and space and matter and he sees time a little bit differently than I do. Maybe he's got something else that he's working on in our lives that needs to happen first. But here's the promise. His glory is always working. He is always working for the good of those who know and love him. If you have given him your life, if you have opened your life to his power, his power is working. You just might not be able to see him. In fact, Paul goes on later in Romans to say, I consider that our present sufferings, and he means being locked in jail and thinking he's going to die, are worth nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Jesus is not a reality that we think about. He is a person who we can know who can define us, who can heal us, who can shape us, who can give us life and purpose and meaning. He is not an abstract con like concept. He is right here. And even though, sadly, you and I, we can't see him face to face, we don't get the privilege of shaking his hand or giving him a hug yet, that's heaven. We are invited to know him. We are invited to learn his voice, to read his words, to study his life, to revolve around him, and in so doing, find the answer to those biggest questions, who am I and who is he? So we stand and we're gonna pray and then Jeannie's gonna, and the guys, they're gonna lead us uh, in a time of worship. But let's just take a moment of stillness. And let's, just wherever we are, let's invite the, um, the Holy Spirit, that power and presence of God, to draw near to us. Come Holy Spirit.
we dare to invite you to move in our lives. Supreme being who created all of life and space and time, come and work in us. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you Holy Spirit that you are here and you're working. And maybe just this morning, uh, maybe some of us, you know, we've, we've, we've had God in that sort of vague out there category for a while. But we've never, we've never given him our lives. We've never said come in. Come all the way in. We've never asked him to forgive us and transform us and grant us a new beginning. And maybe this morning, maybe that's just you. And if that is you, then I'm going to simply pray a prayer. And if you want to echo it, you can echo it in your heart. And that's your way of starting this amazing adventure with Jesus. Lord, I'm sorry for trying to live life on my own, for trying to figure it out on my own, for trying to be the most important person in my life. Today, would you come into my life? Would you wash away my sins and my darkness? And would you grant me life? and a relationship with you. Today I choose to follow you. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love you to just tell one person before you go home just so they can pray for you as you start your journey with Jesus. But maybe for others of us, you know, we also realize we have chosen to follow Jesus, but we have kept him out there and not in here that we've kept him in the place of religion and tradition and safety, and we've not allowed him into the deepest places of, of who we are. And in his great love and his kindness, he, he wants to bring healing to us. He wants to, to work in, in those places of brokenness. It's partly why we do things like inner healing prayer here, because we want to see transformation in every area. And so I'm just gonna pray that the Holy Spirit would come and just gently and lovingly just work into those places of pain and darkness. And he will never force himself to do that, but if you want to pray, you want to ask him to do that, you can just simply ask him and he will come. Come Holy Spirit.